So are we just going to finish off this bottle of wine and call it at that? We might. That might be the wisest course of action. Of course, we don't often make good choices. Welcome to the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome with Melissa Kirscher and Wendy Bowlesby. Welcome, listeners, to Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. I am Melissa, and this is my co-host... Wendy. Hey. 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 And we're recording this just before New Year's, which means this will probably air in March or something. (laughs) And we are kind of just relaxing and basking in the um, (laughs) relatively stress-free zone after Christmas. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, we've already had some wine and we're continuing on this lovely bottle of Esprit Barville 2012 Coats du Rhone Coats du Rhone I don't know what are those little hat things over the O's actually the little hat things yeah. if I remember from my French classes that is an indication that a letter was removed right like they take out S's and H's and things so they put a little hat thing saying by the way we took out a letter just like we do with a with a with a apostrophe? Yeah. Okay. You know. Uh, 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 okay. Yeah. We indicate that we took out letters with a... That's and they have a little hat. <laughs> hat. Okay. There's a gesture there. Hat. Um, this is great radio, Wendy. I know. It's fantastic. If you're paying attention, this is an even-numbered episode, which means we've already been drinking. Yep. However, tonight we are actually taking it fairly easy, and we are only downing one bottle of wine because yes. Melissa has to work in the morning. Well, usually I do anyway, but you know, Ooh. I've I've had a really long month. <laughs> You really so, have. I really have. And I've, I've survived, so I'm just taking it easy right now. I really am. Chill out. I'm chilling. I'm chilling. So as part of our chillaxing, we're taking chillaxing. an evening where we're just sort of exploring somebody that is near and dear to my heart. So if you listen to the Bob Fosse episode, if that aired already. Yes, it would have. Yes. Um, then uh, you already have listened to me sort of just... Uh, fangirl all over something I love. Yeah. So tonight it is Melissa's turn. It's, it's my turn I'm gonna I'm gonna take on early Hitchcock. Yes! Yes, 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 yes. So, you know, Hitchcock being such a a large subject. Very, very in, large. In, in 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 many ways, such a large subject. I'm just paring it down to some selections from his very early career. So we're we're not yeah. gonna talk about Topaz. We're not gonna talk about Topaz. Thank God. Yeah, no. Blech. Although late Hitchcock would be a subject unto itself, um, mm. but no, we're we're going to do 1940s and before. Oh. Well, not even 1940s. We're going to hit 1940 and and. So we're just in his British phase. Mostly British. The, okay. the last couple I will touch on will be American, but it's it's mostly his British films, and then into. Was Hitchcock British or American? He was British. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, Hitchcock, very, very British. And uh, if you kind of... I'm trying to remember at the beginning of the Hitchcock Presents TV series, whether he sounded British or not, but I cannot get a clear beat. Oh, yes. Yes, he's very British. Hello. Yeah. Hello. 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 No, he's not like Terry Thomas British, because nobody is Terry Thomas British. (laughs) (laughs) Terry Thomas should just be a drinking cue for the drinking game. So, dear (laughs) listeners, whenever you hear Terry Thomas mentioned... Or somebody go... Hello. Hello. Because that's Terry Thomas. <laughs> that's silly Terry Thomas. <laughs> Which has nothing to do with Hitchcock. I'm just tucking my chin as far back as it will Hello. go. Hello. <laughs> anyway, sidetrack. Yeah, so so Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, yes, very, very British. And when you think about it, a lot of his tropes in his movies kind of come from this very strict British upbringing. He, he wasn't upper class, but he, he had that proper british the british are very very structured people (laughs) yes and there's a very famous story that hitchcock would tell about his childhood that was actually very formative especially in the subject matter he'd choose for his movies um like when he was eight or nine years old i can't remember he did something wrong like he shoplifted something and his parent his parents i think it was his mother called the the local police and had them take the kid away and lock him in jail overnight. Oh, sweet Jesus. Just to, you know, teach him a lesson. And of course, Hitchcock was traumatized by this. And, you know, throughout his career of movie making, can kind of see this distrust of authority, particularly the police. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, he, he had this, but this sort of working also class. Also a vulgarity. British. Yes. You, especially if you read about the way he treated his actors and the way he talked to them. He was a very vulgar man. Oh, yes. Yes, Which, yes, yes. BT dubs, and this this might be ruining your world a little bit. Julie Andrews, also the same. Oh, yeah. She's got a potty She's mouth. foul. She's very foul. <laughs> yeah. I love that about her. I love knowing that nun queen Julie Andrews, just she got a potty mouth. <laughs> Cuts me up. Okay, anyway. Yes, yes, definitely. Definitely. Hitchcock had the same thing. You know, he he liked to break those rules. He liked to push the envelope in terms of of what you could show on screen, what you could say on screen, what you could do. Um it he liked to put it in that frame of propriety and then put a subversive current under it. Mm-hmm. So he was always very you know, which is why he made so many crime films. He was always very interested in that in Let's naughty break people? In, in naughty people. He really liked exploring <laughs> naughty people. Oh, you're naughty, so, naughty, naughty, naughty. You're so naughty. Yeah. <gasps> you murdered someone? You naughty person. So Alfred Hitchcock, huge body of work. He started working during the silent era. Really? Yeah, he did. He he made dozens of movies in the silent era. Wow. And okay. in, in fact, um, he he worked his way up. You know, he started as like a script supervisor or something like that. He, he actually worked in Germany for a short time working with some of the German expressionists, which is where he, he got some of his um, lighting design techniques and ideas about how to frame shots. And he just kind of worked his way up through the studio system at the time. In Britain. And um, in fact, that's where he met his future wife, Alma Reville, uh, mm-hmm. who was his wife for his entire life. Uh, well, not like when he was a kid, but, you know, from when, you know, he met her, she was actually his boss on uh, one of the the sets for 
a movie that she was working on. And she she was a script supervisor and I think an assistant director. But, you know, she was she was actually a very capable woman in the movie industry when Hitchcock met her. And they met and he eventually proposed to her. And I think they got married in 1926. And they were this amazing working unit from then on. And his wife, Alma, was actually a very significant influence on his work because she would often do the script doctoring and sometimes write entire scripts for him. Mm. She'd have a tremendous amount of influence on on what he he did and how he shot some things. And, and uh, you know, she was always this very potent presence in his creative life. So this is all set up during the silent era of his films. And he was, he was cranking, you know, by the time he hit the director's chair, he was just cranking them out. He, he was doing a couple of movies a year. Two well, or three. in the silent era, yeah, you could really... Just, yeah, you could just crank them out. And he was starting to make a name for himself. But, um, you know, from here on, I'm just going to hit some high points in his career. Because he was doing, you know, even into the sound era, a couple movies a year. A huge amount of work. Well, I mean, that's how you get good, right? Practice. Right. And he was getting a ton of that. Of the silent era, the big movie, the one where he really kind of got traction, was a movie called The Lodger. Okay. And it it was a movie that starred Ivor Novello, who was kind of a big silent film star at the time. He was kind of the pretty boy. Okay. Uh, kind of almost in a Ru- Rudy Valentino sort of cast. Oh. But this was actually the first time that Hitchcock directed a movie that started feeling like a Hitchcock film. Okay, yeah. So you watch this movie and go, oh, I start to see where the pieces are falling together. So you've got, first of all, you've got him working with this famous persona, Eva Novello, even though we don't really remember him today. And the plot of the movie is kind of this Jack the Ripper story where there's there's this killer on the loose. But this, the plot revolves around this boarding house where the landlady suspects that the new lodger she has taken in is the killer. Oh. And Ivor Novello is playing the killer. Well, which and, and Rich if, he's a, if he's a pretty boy, he's a perfect killer. Well, yeah, but, but that wasn't necessarily the trope at the time. I know, but yeah. now it is. It, it certainly is. But Did he established that trope? I, he he kind of worked on it. He, he he chipped away at that foundation. But at, at this point in time, you know, it, it was kind of racy to be, you know, taking the star of the movie and casting him as maybe the oh. villain. We don't know. It, it was really cool. But it, it it was also Hitchcock's first true suspense movie. It was the first crime, you know, overall crime film he did. It was the first time um, Hitchcock appeared as a cameo in his own movie. Oh, this really was the first Hitchcock yeah, film. Oh, yeah, it truly was. Um, he, he appears like in a newsroom early on in the movie. I think it was a newsroom. But also um, there's a big scene at the end on a bridge where they needed a whole bunch of extras and he felt like there weren't enough extras. So he just went in there and was an extra himself. (laughs) So um, that, you know, after uh, apparently people liked that. So he ever since that movie, that's when he started inserting himself as a tiny little cameo in each movie. Mm, That makes me happy. Yeah. Oh, a fun trivia about that. Um, As he became more and more famous. He put the cameos closer and closer to the beginning of the movie so it would be less distracting. Well, that totally makes sense. Yeah. 
He's a very smart man. Oh, he was. Yeah. He was. And that's why we're talking Okay, we're going to get this out of the way. Yeah. Check. Yep. There. Now I can just enjoy the movie. Yeah, I, I just watched North by Northwest a uh, yes, couple nights did, ago. Yes, she did. Because Fess had never seen Fess had it. never seen it. So it's like, oh my God, you have to see North by Northwest. I love I love you watch North by Northwest and it's like 30 seconds into the movie. There's Hitchcock. Done. <laughs> 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 Trying to get on a bus. Done. <laughs> so, um, but also with the, you know, going back to the lodger. Um, one other thing that starts showing up in The Lodger is his very distinctive visual style. Mm. You get all these amazing trick shots. Like there's this wonderful shot that follows up a stairway. Like it, it looks like one of the walls has been removed. So the, the camera actually follows somebody walking up the stairway, follows their feet and, and goes up multiple stories. There's another shot where... Um, Hitchcock was shooting an actress to light her hair. And since part of the killer's modus operandi was blonde hair, he he took this actress and he basically put a pl- plate of glass behind her and had her laid down on it and, and then lit her from behind. So it looked like her hair had this halo around ah, it neat. to highlight. Yeah, it, it just beautiful shots like that. I mean... Of course, going back today and watching silent films is um, problematic. If you're, if you're if you're if you're not used to them, a lot of them can be really really arch and kind of hard to f- not necessarily hard to follow. But there there was just a different visual language back then. Yeah. But Hitchcock, you can see at least in the Lodger, you can start seeing like modern film sensibilities starting to come in. It's it's a really interesting. I need to one see to this. Watch. Put yeah. it on the list. Oh, I will. I will. And there are there are several other um, uh, silent films that are you know definitely worth your time in Hitchcock's catalog, but they're kind of harder to track down, and a lot of them are lost. A lot of them just plain don't yeah. exist anymore, which is sad. But following from there, two years later, we're already going into the sound era. Wow. Yeah, I know. Nineteen twenty nine. We've got blackmail. Okay. So this, oh my god, that sounds like a Hitchcock title. Oh, now this one you'd really like, Wendy. So okay. Blackmail, it's it is Hitchcock's first sound film. When okay. he was first contracted to do the movie, he was starting it as a silent movie, and he had filmed, I believe, most of it. When the studio said, "Oh, hey, sounds new thing," and he, <laughs> and and they wanted to do like the last reel of the movie in sound, and he goes. <laughs> No, that won't work. <laughs> so he and just and they start talking. And yeah, so he he just goes back and refilms most of the movie in sound. But the beautiful thing about blackmail in terms of sound design is that he left the opening scene completely silent. So it's kind of like Wizard of Oz where it starts out black and white and then goes to color and you have this wonderful transformation where you've got this great suspenseful scene opening the movie that just plays out completely visually and then the sound comes in oh yeah that's awesome yeah yeah it's really really cool but beyond that the the plot of blackmail really really interesting especially you know it it was pre pre haze code it was not an american movie the plot is there is this young lady who is dating an up-and-coming detective at Scotland Yard. But, you know, one night she decides to go on a date with another guy. 
And he takes her up to his apartment. He's an artist or something, if I remember, like a painter. And she goes up to his apartment and he tries to rape her. So she kills him. She, She murders him with a bread knife. Good for her. I know, right? And that's a setup. She leaves the apartment under great duress and, um, and of course, keeps a secret. She's terrified. So the, the movie is, first of all, her dealing with her guilt and trying to hide everything. Her boyfriend figuring out that she did, she murdered the guy, but at, just after he finds out that she committed the murder, it, you know, he supports her. You know, she, he knows she was defending himself, herself. Well, there's a third party that they don't know who is blackmailing her because they also know that she committed the murder. So that, you know, hence the title blackmail. So there's this kind of race to, to, you know, catch the blackmailer before he reveals she's the murderer and, and all this fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's super, it's super great. Other interesting things about this one, blackmail was kind of the first time that Hitchcock started using really recognizable monuments in in his movies because you know you definitely see it later on you see very you know like mount rushmore and north by northwest or royal albert hall and uh man who knew too much um in even vertigo even vertigo you know with the um was it san luis the capistrano yeah i think the the famous the, the, the place with the bell tower yeah anyway in this case in blackmail you have the british museum Ooh. Yeah, so they they one of the big set pieces is a chase through the British Museum, but it was this was 1929, and you couldn't really do a whole lot of on location shooting because the film wasn't very sensitive, and it was too dark in the British Museum to do filming. Oh yeah, so they actually what they wound up doing was they they went into the British Museum, took photographs, printed them onto to plates of glass. And then scraped away the the printing where they needed actors to be. So basically, it was the um, it wasn't the invention. It, it had been invented in Russia, if I remember right, or or something like that. It, so it's a technique that had been used before, but it's one of the very early cases of like a traveling mat effect. Ah, that's awesome! <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was super cool. So um, really interesting stuff going on there. Also, it was the very first instance of dubbing because uh, now when you watch um, Singing in the Rain, you know the whole thing about the, you know, one actress dubbing the other because her... Her voice is not appropriate. Well, of course, you know, they started filming blackmail in the silent era and had to move to sound. Well, the, the woman playing... The the lead um, was a young lady named Annie Andra, who was, I believe, Czech? <gasps> she had an accent. She had, she had a really thick accent. And so they brought in another actress. And so the other actress would actually stand off camera and speak the lines while Annie mouthed the lines live. Because you couldn't do live. You couldn't um, replace the looping. sound. You, you couldn't loop it at this point in time. So they had to do everything in camera. Oh, my God. Yeah. So these two women had to sync up with each other to do their dialogue. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> crazy. I know, right? Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. They did not show that in Singing in the Rain. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was crazy. Uh, one last thing about blackmail. There's this beautiful scene, one of my favorite scenes in Hitchcock ever, where Annie Andra is sitting at the table um, in her parents' place uh, the night after the murder happens. And she is, of course, distracted. And, you know, to her parents, nothing has happened. So they're just having breakfast. So they're all sitting at the breakfast table. And the the conversation at the table is, you know, just regular breakfast kind of like, please pass me that bread. And could you hand me the knife? And, and like, anytime somebody says the word knife, the, the sound just kicks oh, up a notch. Oh, that's fantastic. So, so it, it's kind of mutter, 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 knife, mutter, 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 knife, mutter, mutter, <laughs> knife. <laughs> and, and, and the, the camera is just focused on Annie Andra and she just kind of flinches every time knife is said. I think that's and the title for this episode. Mutter, 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 knife! Mutter, 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 knife! <laughs> and so, you know, first sound film he ever does, he's very, Hitchcock is very conscious about using how, sound. How can I use this? Yeah. How, how, how is this a tool in my toolbox? Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. It's beautiful. So from there, there are a few other movies. And then in 1934, he makes the first version of The Man Who Knew Too Much. Hitchcock made two versions of his own movie. He didn't like the first one? Well, this this first oh, one... Oh, tell me, Melissa. Well, the first one, this one was made in 1934. And it was made in Britain. And the second one was made in the mid-1950s, early 1950s. And that's the one with Jimmy Stewart and uh, what's-her-nose, Que Sera and all that jazz. Doris Day. <laughs> Doris Day. Um, and, you know, that one's in, in color, made in America, completely different audience. And, uh, yeah. and by that point, it's just about 20 years later. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess if... I mean, seriously, we're rebooting whole franchises five years later, for oh, fuck's yeah. sake. Yeah, so so the original and The Man Who Knew Too Much, um, I actually like better than the remake. Oh. Because, first of all, the villain is Peter Lorre. Oh! I know, right? So, Peter Lorre, his first English-speaking role, he had to learn it phonetically. Because I he am didn't making s- such a face right now, listeners. <laughs> he he didn't speak any English, <laughs> so he, this this poor this poor guy has to learn his. What was his nationality? Uh, Hungarian. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, I think so. I know it was some sort of Eastern European. Yeah, I, th- I think he was Hungarian. He did really well considering. I mean, yeah. that was his first thing. That was yeah. His- he just walked onto a set and said. <laughs> Look at me. Yeah. I'm interesting looking. I'll yeah. speak it phonetically, and then I will learn English with. With only a slight accent. I mean, honestly. Mm-hmm. Well, his his accent is a little thicker in Man Who Knew Too Much. But um, it it's also an interesting throwback that, you know, Peter Lorre, of course, had gained his traction in the film industry back in Germany with all the German expressionists. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's another link to that ah. type of filmmaking, you know, coming into Hitchcock's work. But yeah, the original Man Who Knew Too Much, I absolutely adore First of all, the the big centerpiece sequence, which is that that sequence at the Albert Hall, where there's this big symphony going on, and and well, to back up, the plot of the film is that there's a man and his wife uh, hear about an assassination attempt, but before they can do anything about it, their daughter is kidnapped to keep them quiet. <gasps> 
So, so the that's the premise. The man who knew too much. The man who knew. Yes. Yes. Okay, or rather, you need to show me this movie. Oh, this this one's great. So, so there's this great centerpiece scene near the end of the film, set at the Albert Hall, where there's this big symphony played, um, and it's it's an original piece of music by Arthur Benjamin. Um, big, beautiful piece of music. And it's this long sequence where the music is kind of synchronized to the wife kind of sneaking around the hall trying to catch the the bad guys in the act. Or I can't quite remember exactly what the machinations are, but it's this big choreographed sequence. It's just beautiful. And it happens in both versions of the movie. And it's wonderful. But also, in addition... What the earlier this earlier version of the man who knew too much has that the other one doesn't is that the wife's character is much more interesting. Oh, because the the later American version it's all centered around Jimmy Stewart and you know Doris Day is just kind of the well I think that's the wifey dear. I think that's honestly a reflection of both the difference between the '30s and the '50s. Is that exactly? And it's also Britain versus America, yeah. especially American '50s. Exactly. Exactly. Because women were a lot more, had a lot more agency in the 30s than they did in the 50s, interestingly enough. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. And the original man who knew too much reflects that. Opening scene, if I remember right, it's the opening scene or a very early scene in the movie. You are on a vacation with the man and the wife and the wife is shown to be a sharpshooter. <gasps> she's got a goddamn gun. That's fantastic. I know, right? And it comes into the plot later. Of course it does. Also, there is this brilliant scene right in the middle for no reason whatsoever that involves a chair fight at a church. Like, people just throwing chairs at each other. It has nothing... (laughs) It doesn't emerge in the later version at all, but every time I've shown this movie to people, everybody loves the chair fight for some reason. It sounds fantastic. (laughs) It, It is so much fun. But also... The first man who knew too much was the first international success for Alfred Hitchcock. So that's actually what kind of got his name outside of Britain. So Hollywood would be like, that fellow. That man. That man right now. Except that Hollywood wouldn't have a British accent. (laughs) Oh, that guy. I like him. I like that guy. That guy right there. I think he might have something. (laughs) So the next year, Alfred Hitchcock directs The 39 Steps. (gasps) <gasps> You've seen the thirty nine steps. I have seen the thirty nine steps. Oh God, I I love the thirty nine steps such so a much. Good movie. Um, it's one of my very favorites of this era. It's, such it's a good so movie. great. It's been forever since I've seen it, so yeah. I might misremember. But I know, I know that the minute you say the thirty nine steps, I'm like, no. <laughs> it's so charming. It really is. Now, I think the thirty nine steps is where you start getting the the people vibe of Hitchcock. That fun romp adventure. There, there's this undercurrent of seriousness, but there's this gloss of fun over it. You, you see that North by Northwest vibe in yeah. 39 Steps. Yeah. Yeah. So the 39 Steps. Well, he's steps. got two different sort of yeah. currents he operates on. Yeah. And sometimes one will take precedence over the other. Right. But at his best, they both are happening at the same time. Yeah. They're kind of balancing each other yeah. out. So the 39 Steps, if you, dear listeners, if you haven't seen it, the plot is there's this this man in London, I, I think he's, if I remember right, he's Canadian. Wow. And, uh, it's been forever since I've yeah. seen it. But he he's at a, uh, a vaudeville show where there's Mr. Memory sort of guy who goes up and people ask him questions and he pulls answers just out of his brain, just much like Kelvin Hatley. And... <laughs> 
Um, but at this show, the guy runs into a woman in the audience who basically says, there's somebody trying to kill me, walk me home, essentially. And so he goes to her apartment, and it turns out she's a counterintelligence spy person. And she's, you know, basically keeping him around like as a bodyguard. And she winds up dead. And then, of course, he has to go... F- find out what happened because and and you know trap the spies that she's after and and he's accused of the crime and all this fun stuff and along the way he meets a cute blonde and he winds up handcuffed to her and they run across a scottish countryside while side while handcuffed to each other and as one does it, it it's just this kind of cross-country crime romp adventure story and it is super duper fun the actor playing the man is Robert Donat, who is an actor that too few people know. Yeah, I can't I remember his name. Because he, he he only did like 20 movies. Only. Only. <laughs> only. Only. But, you know, he had a fairly long career. But, you know, in this point in time, at this point in time, if you were in movies, you were cranking movies out. And he he was very ill most of the time. He had severe asthma, oh. so he couldn't take that many roles. And he actually died very young. He died, like, at age 50, 52, something oh. like that. But he was this wonderful actor. He had this wonderful charm to him. He was he had kind of a wistfulness to him. Oh. And, yeah, he, he was very adorable. And a couple years later, he did a movie called Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Oh, like that little movie. That little movie. That one. That one. He starred in Goodbye, Mr. Chips, and he actually won Best Actor from the Academy for that over Clark Gable and Gone with the Wind. Good for him. I know, right? So that's kind of his claim to fame was Goodbye, Mr. Chips. But... But in the 39 Steps, he's, he's like this perfect Hitchcock actor. And Hitchcock tried to cast him later... Like three other times, and it never worked out. He was oh. either ill or he was, had some other commitment. And th- so this was the only Hitchcock film he ever got to do. But he was paired up with Madeline Carroll, who was kind of had an equally charming presence. And those two actors were selected specifically to appeal to Americans because they, they weren't very British. I mean, <laughs> Robert Dunant was British, but he had a very neutral accent. Okay. So they felt like they could sell the movie more to Americans that way. Well, I know it's a classic of American film, too. Yeah. So I have to think so. Yeah. Okay, so it worked. Yeah. Good job. It worked. It worked. Um, also, with that movie, you start seeing the trope of the wrongly accused man coming ah. into Hitchcock. The, Which, yeah. When, the first time I ever saw Rear Window, I because of that trope, I kept expecting it to twist mm-hmm. that the man he had seen wasn't actually the murderer. Oh, yeah. But it was. But it was. Sorry, spoiler. What a twist. (laughs) What a twist. That wasn't a twist. So a year later, we have Secret Agent. I don't know that um, Which I, honestly, I don't remember much about. I remember liking it, but it's been a while since I've seen it. You went through sort of an OCD Hitchcock phase at one point, didn't you? I did. Well, actually, um, there was a year where every other week I would run Hitchcock movies at my house. Okay, yeah. And we watched every single one. Okay, so that, that you could find every single one that we could find, which is about the same number as we could find now, you know, yeah. because they haven't discovered a whole lot. Yeah, they, like they found the White Shadow, but I think that was the only one that they found since. But anyway, Secret Agent, nineteen thirty-six. It involves three British agents who are assigned to assassinate a German spy during World War One, but two of them start to kind of 
think maybe this isn't the right thing to do. So they start, you know, mm-hmm. trying to stop the third one. And, and then, you know, hijinks ensue. Um, this one Im- involves Sir John Gielgud. <laughs> I know, right? And Madeline Carroll from the 39 Steps. And Robert Young. And Peter Lorre. <laughs> so, um, also, it... Uh, small bit of trivia. It this is the movie that is the feature film debut of Michael Redgrave. He's in like two tiny, one tiny little part that appears twice in the movie. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. So like, huh, all these things are coming together. All these things. Oh Hitchcock. Oh, oh Hitchcock. Hitchcock, you man, you. <laughs> Same year. There's a movie called Sabotage, which is... um, Now, I've heard of Sabotage. Yeah, Sabotage. There's also Saboteur, which was in the 40s. Different movie. Sabotage, um, the plot involves Scotland Yard detective, uh, undercover detective is trying to find this um, mad bomber who is threatened to put a bomb on a city bus or something. And, you know, they're trying to, you know, catch this guy. Kind of it, it, this terrorist thing is happening, and they're trying to, yeah, okay, and, of, yeah. and of course, it all unravels, and horrible things happen as they do, <laughs> as, they, as do, they do, as they do, as they do. Um, really interesting movie. Um, the thing, the thing I always remember, and that most people tend to remember, is that there's this perfect Hitchcock scene right in the middle that is like a masterclass in how Hitchcock creates suspense. Oh. Because it's a scene where a young boy is bringing a package onto a bus. And unbeknownst to everybody, including the boy, the the package is a bomb. And so the boy and his dog get onto a bus, a city bus. And the camera just lingers around this bus. So, like, you're shown beforehand, you know, that the audience knows that this package is dangerous and then you're forced to wait oh. to see what happens oh yeah that's perfect yeah yeah that and that I mean, that is the, that's what you do is you let the audience know something nobody else knows yeah and then and then you make them sit in agony waiting to see what happens that's the kind of shit that makes you yell at the screen don't no <laughs> stop just don't just get off the bus just get off the bus and of course all these things happen that kind of delay that you know it, oh. it it's just agony to sit through <laughs> and there and and if i remember right there's there were like pieces of animation in there and you know like showing things happening inside the package and it, it's pretty creative it's oh neat. it's really inter- okay really interesting but yeah that's like the big centerpiece of that movie is that wonderful sequence then a few other movies happen, and then you get to 1938, which you have The Lady Vanishes. I know I've and, heard of this one, although yeah, I haven't seen it. This one's very famous. Yeah, very few people have seen it these days, but it is, it's delightful. Absolutely delightful. Um, this is one of those movies where, you know, Hitchcock's fame was that, you know, he had a really nice collection of actors that wanted to work with him so this is a story that involves um a bunch of people on a train right so there's this young woman on a train who gets into a conversation with this little old lady on a train and you know they get along and they have this nice little conversation and and the young woman's rather taken with the old lady and then the old lady just disappears like she the young woman goes away and you know stuff happens and then she goes oh where's the old lady that i just met 
and she's gone and like nobody knows she was there like everybody's like i don't even know who you're talking about what the hell and and this woman's like no seriously i think i think something's wrong like they're gaslighting her or something yeah yeah and so she's going through the train and, and and her boyfriend's going through the train with her and they're trying to figure out what's going on and people are either being evasive or you know they have no clue or you know and and it's this wonderful mystery oh okay. wonderful mystery and it, it it is super fun um it's the first major role of michael redgrave okay um and it has margaret lockwood and paul ducasse and dame dame may Whitty, if you know who I she know is I know that name. yeah yeah she's been around and just a super delightful film this one there's this wonderful little scene that nicely illustrates just how well Hitchcock could direct a shot. There's a scene where three or four characters talking at a table, you know, in the tining car. And there is nothing in the scene that tells you that one of the glasses of water on the table is poisoned. Nothing has been directly told to you that this is what has happened. But just through the way Hitchcock shoots the scene, you know, something is wrong with one of the water glasses. <gasps> oh. Because the, there, there is just this visual language that he uses to indicate that even with this fairly innocuous conversation going on, something is wrong on the table. And it's that glass right there. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. <laughs> I want to see that. That sounds so cool. Oh, I can do I. I can provide. I, can I know provide. you can. I have them all. I have them all. So from there, a couple other movies happen, and then we get to 1940. And I know you've seen this one because this is Rebecca. I know. I love that movie okay. so much. So Rebecca, Rebecca is the first movie that Hitchcock did in America. This is when David O. Selznick came to Hitchcock and said, hey, do movies in America. You, you there. You, you. And I'll let you do a very British movie in America. So here you go. It's very British. It's very, very British. So it's this, it's this movie about this young lady who um, marries a widower. She marries him, right? Yeah, 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 she marries him. She wasn't just a girlfriend moving into this place. No, she marries him. She marries this widower. His, his previous wife died in some... Bizarro, mysterious, mysterious accents, and, and and he has a creepy housekeeper in his, the big mansion he lives in, yeah. and, and and it's the the movie primarily focuses on the young lady trying to figure out what happened, and she's clueless, and she's and, totally being gaslighted, yeah, totally, and oh yeah, and the young lady is Joan Fontaine, yes, yes, and and uh, it's uh, sister to Olivia de Havilland. Oh, that's right, I forgot about it. And when you when you look at the yep. two of you, you're like, yep, 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 yep. holy shit, yep. <laughs> they didn't like each other very much. Ooh. There was a feud there, if I remember right. Wow. Yeah. True fact. I maybe, didn't know that. Maybe true fact. I might be drunk. <laughs> <laughs> but also, Rebecca, you've got Lawrence Olivier. <gasps> that's right, it is him. Mm-hmm. Oh. And George Sanders and Nigel Bruce. Oh, George Sanders. And Leo G. Carroll. <laughs> And Judith Anderson as Mrs. Danvers. Oh, God, she's great. Who, who is the creepiest housekeeper who ever housekept? She 
Oh, she just yeah. she just wanders around and chews on things. She's like, "Hello, I'm Mrs. Depp." She never blinks. No, she, she doesn't. She just kind of glides around. She doesn't walk. She just kind of glides around in her little black dress. Um, <laughs> the housekeeper in the haunting. Um, yeah. Do you remember that, yeah, that yeah, small yeah. bit part where she's like, "We don't come at night." We don't come at night. I feel like she's just like, I wish I was Mrs. Danvers. I yes. wish I was Mrs. Danvers. <laughs> Wouldn't you wish you were Mrs. Danvers? I would totally wish I was oh, Mrs. Danvers. Oh, man. When I did um, the stage version of Rocky Horror, I played Columbia, but our, um, our magenta was instructed by our director to watch Rebecca and specifically the role of Mrs. Danvers. <laughs> and so Mrs. Danvers informed her interpretation of magenta in the rocky horror show wow <laughs> wow that is a true fact awesome anyway, and it really did i was like good job you she just yeah, really should do these eyes <laughs> and i think i think this may be the first where where hitchcock starts fucking around with his actresses not like fucking his actresses but fucking around which with he them. eventually did yeah as well well that's in debate but whether or not he ever fucked them, he definitely played head games. With well, them. he definitely played head games with them, and that's that. I think this is where it started was in Rebecca because um, Joan Fontaine was brought into the movie uh, to do the role, but Laurence Olivier, I think, if I remember right, he was dating Vivian Lee at the time and wanted her in the movie, uh, but that was, didn't work. He was out. married to Vivian. Vivian. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but he wanted her in the movie instead. So, so when Joan Fontaine was brought in, uh, Lawrence Olivier didn't didn't like her, <laughs> and so Hitchcock decided to use that and told Joan Fontaine that nobody liked her, and so to inform her 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 performance of yeah. isolation, isolation and paranoia, and oh, I mean it's really yeah. good, but. Honestly, how about you just let your actors do their job and pretend? Yeah, seriously. Do you really need to inf- inflict some PTSD on them? <laughs> Jesus. Oh, yeah. But yeah, Rebecca was a groundbreaking movie for, you know, getting Hitchcock to America. It was a really remarkable film anyway. Well, and it's the and cla- it's a classic suspense film. It's a classic suspense film. It was the only Hitchcock film that ever won Best Picture. It- really? The only one. The only one. Well, at least he got an Oscar. I mean, so many well, of Well, our... he, he never got Best Director Oscar. Well, never. I know. Right? That's the thing is that you look back at these, these touchstones and you're like, really? We never managed in our lifetimes to acknowledge that? Mm-hmm. Sweet Jesus. But it also, you know, started Hitchcock's relationship with David O. Snellsnick, who was his producer for a long time. They had a very tempestuous relationship but Selznick was very instrumental in getting him established over here so I've got I've got one more one more Hitchcock one more Hitchcock we're getting to the end oh god no this was also 1940 this was also an American film wait wait he did two movies in 1940 he did two movies in a year yeah how old was he oh goodness by this point he was oh 30s or 40s 40s Good for him. 40s-ish, yeah. I just got to say, good for him. Yeah, he was doing He was doing well. Yeah, okay. He was doing well. So, Foreign Correspondent, another I, one of my favorites from this era. I do not know this oh, movie at this all. Oh, one's, this one's fantastic. Okay. I, I've really garnered a lot of affection for this one. So, um, another one of his American ones. Uh, it stars Joel McCrea, Lorraine Day, George Sanders, Edmund Gwynn. Oh, 
Yeah, yeah, right? So it's about this American reporter who is over in London and he happens upon enemy spies and he's trying to expose them. Okay. And this is 1940, so we're into World War II, mm-hmm. but America has not entered the war yet. So shit's going down, but we're over here, never mind. Right. Hitchcock's British. He wants America to fucking get in the war. He wants America to get into the war. Okay. And it's this wonderful, uh, foreign correspondent is this wonderful little suspense movie, a wonderful crime spy caper. And as it goes on, it just keeps ramping up and ramping up. And then there's this, this final scene, which um, actually replaced the original final scene oh. of the movie because um, as they were finishing up the film, I can't remember what the dates were, but it was like June 5th, 1939, 1940, when the Brits heard that Germany was going to start bombing London. And so Hitchcock calls him Ben Hecht, who is one of the great screenwriters of the time. I mean, this is the guy who wrote Spartacus, right? Okay, yeah. So he calls him Ben Hecht to write a new final scene for the movie, which is literally a plea for help for from America. <gasps> oh, I love it. <laughs> so, sorry if it's a spoiler, but there's this there's weird there's this kind of almost weird propaganda ending to it, but it, it it's this really impassioned it's like it's seriously They're going to fucking start help. bombing us. Help. <laughs> but yeah, it 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 it's this wonderful spy caper with this really real life angle, you know, as, as terrible and wonderful as it was. But also, um, there are all these other delightful things about it. Like, um, there's a, um, in the climax of the movie, there's this plane crash where this airplane crashes into water and, and there's this big scene that happens on this sinking airplane, in 1940, you know, t- figuring out how to do this special oh. effect, there they had this cockpit of a plane, in, and they actually landed a stunt plane into a um, uh, like a water tank, but they had a, a backlit screen on rice paper that uh, was playing the footage of the you know, uh-huh. what you'd see out the windows and then the water would cra- crash through the rice paper and into the plane to make it look like it was actually doing a <sighs> nosedive into the water. And, you know, just really elaborate stuff. Really elaborate special effects for the time. Neat. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because Hitchcock had the clout to develop effects like this. Yeah. I mean, thank God for directors like him or... Because they're the ones who push the envelope and say, no, what if we tried this? How mm-hmm. would that look? Mm-hmm. Wait, I think it could work. Oh, yeah. I think it could work. I think we could just do this. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's a super fun. It, there's this whole thing. There's this whole thing about windmills in the movie. There's this whole sequence that involves like chases through, through windmills in the English countryside and all this crazy okay, stuff. Okay, I have to ask, but yeah. given what I know about Hitchcock, windmills, yeah. were there shadows? Oh, yeah. There's so many shadows. <laughs> like rotating shadows? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. All so right. many, so many shadows, so many shadows. Because <laughs> I'm like, you know, from what I know of Hitchcock, the only reason to put a windmill in there is to have a lot of rotating shadows. Also, stairways. There, there are so many stairways. So many stairs. So many stairs in Hitchcock. Stairs and shadows. Well, stairs, stairs, shadows, and, shadows. and shadows of stairs. Yeah. And a blonde woman. Blondes. Totally. He was all about blondes. He t- was his wife blonde. Um, I can't remember. I think she kind of was. What if she wasn't? Mm. 
Do we yeah. have more listener questions? Uh, we do. We do. Okay, we should Although wrap up we, the we should wrap up. topic. Yes, we should wrap this up. So, so yeah. So, so that's what I got. Him 1940s up. and pre, you know, it was kind of an over, hitting the high sort points. Of, sort of him launching up and doing that first sort of splash into Hollywood. Yes. Like, boom, I'm fucking Alfred Hitchcock, people. Fasten your seatbelts because this is going to happen now. Yeah, so if you're if you're looking for the high points, there are nine films that you can start with. There are, and yeah. Rebecca is fantastic, yeah. and the Thirty Nine Steps. Yeah, <laughs> and and a lot of the ones I mentioned are in public domain, so that they're oh, nice. actually really easy to get a hold of. Are they like on YouTube and shit? Um, I think a few of them are. Nice. Like the the I think the Lodger is um, oh. blackmail. I think is definitely in the public domain. I may not wait for you. <laughs> it's, I I can happily loan them to you. I have very nice DVD <laughs> copies of all these. Of course you do. I do. Because you're Melissa. I own them all. I own them all. I happen to have a lot of DVDs of musicals. What? How'd that happen? I'm shocked. Shocked to tell you. Shocked. All right. So, listeners, that was our foray into early Hitchcock yes. with Melissa as our guide, a very knowledgeable guide. Seriously, if you're going to go into early Hitchcock, you should let Melissa light the torch. <laughs> and, uh, you know, someday we might do Hitchcock in the 1950s. Yeah. It, and, then, and then 60s. And, and then, yeah. 70s. I feel like that would be a good idea to break that shit up. Oh, yeah. 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 Whenever I feel lazy and I just need to talk about something I know off the top of my head. <laughs> We'll just talk about more Hitchcock. I, so listeners, you'll always know when I'm kind of exhausted. I'll just start talking Hitchcock. I mean, because I took some notes on Fosse, but let's be honest, most of what I talked about was off the top of my head. Yep. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right. So we have more listener questions. We do. That's so exciting. Please keep answering our questions. It makes us feel like we're not just talking into the void in an existential crisis worthy of a Hitchcock hero. Hero? Hero. Worthy of a Hitchcock hero. <laughs> Hero. 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 Heroine. I'm Terry Thomas. Hero. I was going to say heroine, but then I'm like, what? No. Mm. No, because really, his heroines didn't have existential crises. His heroes did. Well, not necessarily. Well, they had crises of a different nature. Yeah. I need to show you Marnie. Oh, I've never seen it. Oh, your head will spin. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. We might just do another cinematic weekend where all you do is show me Hitchcock and all I do is show Oh, you musicals. Okay. And Pride and Prejudice. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Pride and Prejudice and musicals. Okay. Okay. Um, hey, we have a listener questions. We do. Who are you? Ryan Alexander. Again. Yay, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Hi. You're a repeat. <laughs> Ryan, what do you do? I make computers go. And those who make computers go, go as well. <laughs> Nice, I like, I like that. Nicely, nicely phrased. Yeah. You can manage to get go-go in there without it being in the usual sense. <laughs> All right. Ryan, what is in your dream pleasure dome? A perfect historical booze replicator. <gasps> oh. oh. A machine that can create perfect renditions of any kind of booze, including the original bottling. I would love to have some medieval mulled wine. Yeah. I would be fascinated by that. Yeah. Also, Elizabethan gin. Not so yeah. much like, because that, that shit would, was poisonous. We all know that. But I right. kind of want to just taste it to be like, how did, what was this? Oh, Jesus. Okay, really? Yeah. Ooh, turpentine. Um, um, and he, his, oh, great. His, there's more. There's, there's more. There's more. Okay. So a machine that can create perfect renditions of any kind of booze, blah, blah, blah. Also, really, I mean, really good Reuben sandwiches. Oh, 
Yeah. yeah. Melted cheese on a toasted sandwich is something that is honestly, yeah. if I weren't an atheist, I would think it was proof of God's existence. Because mm. melted yeah. cheese on a toasted sandwich. That is pretty heavenly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Various cheeses, various toasted breads. <laughs> Jesus of cheeses. <laughs> I'm the Jesus of cheeses. Okay. All right. All hey, right. hey, Ryan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ryan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is a Pleasure Dome recommendation? Please do shows about. Okay. All right. Number one, animated features. Possibly split into different sections, shows about Japanese animation or things like Don Bluth versus Disney versus Pixar. Oh, Oh, okay. yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. okay, okay, yeah, okay. okay, we'll put it to, we'll put it on a list. Two, food films. Yes, Chocolat, Chocolat, I Ooh, love to watch Chocolat yeah. and drink a, drink a lot of red wine and eat a lot of fucking chocolate. Oh, yeah. When I'm, when I'm kind of PMSy. Yeah. it's not a good film, but it's a great film for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What was that Stanley Tucci, Big Night. Big Night? Stanley oh, Tucci, mm, yeah, Big that, Night. that's very much about food. Mm, yeah. Okay, mm, mm, okay, mm. we have ideas. We also, have ideas. Julie and Julia. Oh, yeah. That's a good yeah. We could have a whole weekend where we just did food films and ate too much. Wait, we've already done that. Oh, yeah. Ah. Tampopo. Okay. Anyway, uh, three, just give up and do a Marvel Cinematic Universe one. We'll make it into a drinking game. <laughs> okay. I almost suggested a Marvel Universe topic for tonight. <laughs> we could do that. could do that. And four. Uh, four, we have Straight to Video, an episode about films that never got a wide or any theatrical release. Oh. Oh, that'd yeah, be good. Okay, yeah. Okay. Okay, okay yeah. All and right. five, 80s, <laughs> with three exclamation marks. Gotcha. 80s. Oh, Boy, 80s. That, that would be a large one to tackle. I feel like we'd have to do 80s subcategory. No, we'd have to do 81, 82, 83, might, oh, 84. Eight, oh, but 85 is huge. And 87. 87 oh, was really good. Oh, my God. 85 is amazing. I don't know what to do with 89. It's an 84, but, 85 that's amazing. But yeah. one of those two is just like, whoa. whoa. <laughs> okay, what else? End of year countdown show. Oh, we kind of missed that. Oh, Yeah. We oh, could well. do, yeah. next year. Next year. We next could do year. it we could do it in January. Hey, by the way, these are movies you saw last year. <laughs> <laughs> and and final one. 3D best and worst. Oh. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a good that's yeah. a good one. I don't you know, know I don't know so much about worst because I avoid films when people say, Oh, the the 3D is shitty. Yeah. And 3D doesn't do a whole lot for me. Yeah, I'm not big on 3D. Although that would give me a very big excuse to talk about Gorilla at large. But that said, I have seen movies where I was like, there is finally a reason to have 3D. That movie. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. So we could talk about that. So we should add those. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All yes, right. Thank will. you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. You're we have so many You're ideas. so helpful. He's all the way in England and he listens to us. So you should be happy that you listen to us too because <laughs> you're part of an international audience. Woohoo. Yay. So wine. All right. Let's, uh, let's wrap this one up. Yes. I'm rolling my hands. Mm. So thank you, dear listeners, for joining us in the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. It's and been pleasurable and domey. Oh, yes. Very domey. Very domey. So uh, I've been Melissa, and that has been... Wendy. And we love you, and thank you, and good night. Good night. Thank you for joining us in the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. Our theme song was written by Tim Wick and Jeffrey Brown and recorded and mastered by Chad Dutton. New episodes arrive every Thursday. 
You can find us on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can also visit us at XanaduCinema.com, follow us on Twitter at XanaduCinema, and like us on Facebook at Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome.